Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning at New City Church. When I was a kid, we would often, my grandparents would often take me and my brothers down to Florida. We had a lot of extended family down in Florida, and two of these years in particular, uh, I had a grand, great aunt and uncle that lived in the Tampa area. They had a large house with a pool, and some of my other cousins would come up, and we would spend like a week there every summer. It was amazing. But two of the years, instead of going to their house, we rented out this cabin at some lake, swamp, somewhere in Florida. It was really run down, really cheap, but we'd all pack into this cabin, and you'd go fishing, and you'd do all these things. But when you walked into like the lodge where you would check in, they had something called a swamp monkey, which had teeth and horns and all these sorts of things, and it was like a stuffed head. In fact, there's a picture of it right here. So this is a, this is a swamp monkey. That's me, by the way, all the way on your left yeah, in the blue shirt. Um, this head was out, like in the checkout area, and uh, I don't know where it came from, but they said this was a swamp monkey that lived on the swamp. And so my grandparents, you know, my great aunt and uncle, all sort of thing, they would tell us at night the swamp monkeys would come out. And so you would have to be really careful if you're walking around the campgrounds. And so, of course, what we would do every night is we would try to go and catch one. And so we'd get like a big fish net or whatever, and we walk out and run around. Of course, we don't see them anywhere. But then, we, you know, we, our aunt and uncle or grandfather would start screaming like they're attacking us. So we would freak out. We'd run back inside and be like, where is he? We'd go try to find him. And he's like laying on the ground with like dirt all over him. And one time he literally scratched his arm to show us that he got attacked. And it was this weird thing. It was like, there's no way that this is true. This thing exists. Like, I'd never heard of it. Like, would they really, like, let us, like, rent cabins where these cannibal-eating monkeys, I don't know. But, like, but they kept saying it was, but it's, like, at the same time, there's no way. And so, like, I didn't know. And plus, they had a head of one in the lodge. So, like, where do they get it from if it's not real? So, as a kid, you're, like, wrestling back and forth. Like, I don't, you're saying this is true, but I think you're joking, but there's a head. Like, what is happening here? Even the person on the counter said it was real. So, we're doubting, but we're not quite sure to do with it. And today, as we continue our series, Let's Talk About It, we've been talking about topics that impact all of us. And today, we're going to be talking about doubting our faith, not being sure of what we're trying to follow or pursue is actually real or not. And I don't know what's, what that's been like for some of you. When I was in college, was actually my biggest crisis of faith um, that I have ever had. I grew up in the church, had a great church, and, and followed Jesus and all that sort of thing. And when I Got into college. I mean, many of you are familiar with my story. Uh, my dad took his own life when I was 19 years old. And interestingly enough, um, as hard as that was, that really was not a really faith crisis for me. Uh, what was really difficult for me was when I was in college, I ended up switching from music to religious studies, wanted to figure out, I think I want to get into ministry one day. And and uh, I got to the point where you're taking all these classes. Of course, it's a public university. They don't really believe that Jesus is true or all these sorts of things. And so I got to the point where, man, I don't know if this is, stuff is true. Like, is the Bible written by the people that it says it was written by? Did these things actually happen? And there was about a year where I couldn't read the Bible the same. I remember thinking, I, I'm, I'm learning this stuff in the classroom. But at the same time, like, I know there's really, really smart people that are Christians. And so trying to reconcile, you know, the, the things that I was being taught, some of the things that I was reading on my own, trying to figure this out. I remember thinking, I'm not going to just believe this stuff simply because I grew up around it. And there was about a year where I couldn't read the Bible the same. I would go to church and, you know, during the worship times, people are singing and thinking, man, like, I don't, I, I wish I could do what they were doing. But I had all these questions and, and all these doubts and all these things that I was unsure of. That I wasn't sure what to do with it. And here's what I know. All of us have those doubts. Maybe you're here and you're just trying to figure out if this Jesus thing is even legit. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and there's certain things that happen or things that you read or questions that you are asked or get asked of you and begin you to start to think, I mean, I don't know if this is true either. Like I have serious, significant 
doubts. And if that's you, uh, here's also, I don't know if this is encouraging or not, but, but you also find yourself in the very similar position that many people, even in Scripture, found themselves in when it comes to doubting God. There are plenty of examples of this. In Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say not to do this? You have Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 15, when God says, I'm going to take you, make you into a great nation out of which the Savior of the world will come. Uh, they were really old, well past the age of childbearing, and so Abraham is told he's going to have a son. He doubts that this is actually going to happen. Then he tells his wife, Sarah, who laughs at him. Uh, you have Moses, of course, in Exodus chapter 3, the story of the burning bush where God is calling Moses to lead his people out of the prom or out of slavery and into the promised land and he doubts that this is actually going to happen. Uh, you have Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. He was a great prophet in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah goes up over goes up against hundreds of prophets uh, to false gods and they had basically these two altars and they were going to try to uh, they're in the midst of this big drought and they're going to try to ask their gods or to ask God to bring fire down and to light the altar and so for hours uh, all these hundreds of false gods are beating themselves, chanting, doing all these things. Nothing happens. Then it's Elijah's turn. He takes buckets of water, douses all the wood, prays to Yahweh, prays to the Lord, and then God makes a fire on his camp. And then in 1 Kings 19, the very next chapter, he's like, God, I want to curse you and die. Like, there's no one that believes in you except me. And God's like, well, actually, that's not true, you know, whatever. But like, he's, he saw this miraculous miracle and then he's like, I don't know if I think can trust this stuff anymore. Or in Numbers chapter 13, when the Israelites are traveling in the, in the wilderness, they make it to the promised land. They send 12 spies into the land to see if they can move in and be okay. And 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, if we try to go into this land, we are going to be killed. There's too many people here. They're bigger than us. And so Israel doesn't go in. They doubt all over the place. Even in the New Testament, you have John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. He was the prophet to make the way, the forerunner for Jesus, saying that the kingdom of God is here, that God's Messiah has come. And then in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist then finds himself in prison for being really faithful. He's actually about to get beheaded. And so he writes a letter to Jesus and his disciples and asks, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Right? He begins to significantly doubt. All of us do. And so I just want to say this, if you're just here this morning, if you're watching online, that you are welcome to doubt here. You are welcome, and it is normal, right? If you were to say, man, I am not sure that I believe Adam and Eve actually existed, or I just, man, I don't know about this exodus from Egypt to the Palestinian area. Like, this actually happened. There's not a lot of historic, historical data that we can point to. I know it was a long time ago, so I don't know that this actually happened. I don't, I don't know if Mary was really a virgin, because that is actually impossible to, to have that happen. All right, or the Bible was written thousands of years ago, and so maybe what it says about sexuality and marriage should be adapted to today because culture is different. Right? Or if God is good, why did he let my mom get cancer? Right? She was a good person. Or why does God continue to allow all of these shootings to happen, not only in our country, but in our own city in these last couple of days? Or I've asked God to do really good things, like honorable things for me or for other people. Or I've asked him to help me trust him. Or I've asked him to help me overcome or fight this temptation in my life. And he hasn't answered it. And so I have doubts right? All of us are there or have been there to some 
degree. And of course, not only do you have many characters or many people in the Bible who doubt, but you have scriptures written by people who are doubting. So for example, in Psalm ch uh, chapter 13, all the scriptures will be on the screens today, but you're welcome to turn there if you want as well. In Psalm chapter 13, the psalmist that is writing this particular psalm is wrestling with doubts of his own. And he says this, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemies dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Now, maybe you wouldn't word it exactly that way, but I think the feeling of this psalm, you might have said, I know what that's like. And I've said very similar things. And so here's what we need to just know this morning, that everyone has doubts. Absolutely everyone, all of us, even me. In fact, I don't know if this is, I don't know what you think about this. I actually have doubts all the time. I have questions all the time, and they just change based on the seasons, right? Sometimes they're theological things about God, or why would God do this, or why would God behave in this way, or why does God act in this, like that stuff, like theological questions, or sometimes they're just really practical. Like, what am I actually supposed to do in this situation? Or you're, you, you think, your scripture says, like, behaving in this manner is actually good, or what about the people who struggle? Like, there's, like, practical questions, or just things that are confusing. Like, the Bible can be really confusing. What am I supposed to do with this? Or why did you let this happen? Or why didn't you say something? something about what was going on in this part of the text. Like there's a, a lot of questions. And I think for all of us, the question then is this, is how should we deal with them? If everyone has doubts, knowing we're all going to have doubts, and for many of us, we're always going to have doubts about something at some point all the time, how should we actually deal with them? Right? That's the question for us. Now, what's also interesting is in Matthew 28, uh, one of the well-known passages of Scripture, uh, Jesus is with his disciples. This is after his uh, uh, sorry, resurrection. Uh, he has not ascended back into heaven yet. And he has what, what, what we call the Great Commission, where he gathers his disciples together. And there's something really interesting here. I don't know if you've ever picked up on it. It says this. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubt it. Right? So Jesus here, he's about to ascend back into heaven. He's, after his resurrection, he was on earth for 40 more days. And he, he calls, he tells his people, hey, come meet me here. And so they see Jesus and yet some doubted. Now, Matthew, in Matthew's account of this, he only specifically talks about the disciples. We know that there were more people than just the 11 disciples there. So you have this group of people, maybe a couple hundred, we're not quite exactly sure how many people would have been there, who come to see Jesus one final time. And they see this man who was dead and is no longer dead, and yet some doubted. Now, the, the frustrating part here is that Matthew doesn't tell us um, who is the some. Like, was it some of the actual closest disciples of Jesus, or was it some of his other followers? It doesn't tell us. And, and, and what exactly did they doubt? It, doesn't, it also doesn't tell us what they doubted. Like, did they doubt that this was actually Jesus? Or did they doubt, like, were they just kind of confused? Like, how is this happening? Like, what's going on here? Or did they doubt, in other words, have some questions? Like, you're about to leave, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with all the stuff that I've seen and heard. Right? So some people were not sure her, who doubted in some way were not told. But then Jesus goes and says this in verse 18. It says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in other words, he has all of these people together. Some of them are doubted or bewildered, confused, just not sure what to do with all that is going on. And what Jesus does not say is once you are absolutely certain, once you have no more questions, once you are fully confident in what I'm asking you to do, then go and do these things. Instead, he looks at these worshiping, doubting followers and says, you go. You doubters, go. You who are inadequate and feel like you don't always measure up, you go and tell the world about me and what you have seen, what I have done, and what I have taught you. Right? They had doubts, but even in the midst of that, Jesus was commissioning them to go. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were told to do something but doubted you could actually do it. Have you ever had this, maybe a parent, teacher, friend was like, hey, you can really do this, but you're like, I'm not really sure, uh, but, but, but they said, I, I believe in you. Like, this has happened to me a couple times in my life. I remember one time when I was a kid, maybe eight, 10 years old, not exactly sure how old I was. I think it was a Saturday, and I was in our front yard with my dad, and he had his ladder. So our house was a two-story house that we grew up in, and we had a garage. And then we, you know, on top of the garage, we had like our bonus room. But the garage protruded out in front of the bonus room a couple feet. And so we had, I don't know if you call it a roof, an awning, I don't know, something. And so I have no idea. And so it was about eight to 10 feet above the ground, and it kind of stuck out from the house, and then you had windows, whatever. And he had a ladder, I don't, and he was up there cleaning, maybe cleaning the gutters, I'm not exactly sure. So he goes up on the ladder onto this little roof area, and then I go up after him. And after he's done, I don't remember what he was doing, after he was done with that, he then got down, and then it was my turn to get on the ladder and come down. But for whatever reason, I was terrified. Like, I just knew that once I get to the edge of this roof and turn around and, like, put my foot on the ladder, I was going to slip. So I was like, I am not coming down. I was so scared. My dad was like, you can do it. And I was like, Dad, can you go in the house and go upstairs and open the window and just let me come in the window? And he was like, no. And I remember him saying, eventually, he said, Dylan, I would not ask you to do something if I did not think you could do it. And so finally, I was like, oh, I was like, my heart was racing. I was so terrified. I was like, fine, I'm going to do this. And so I go, I walk to the edge of the roof. I turn around, put my foot on uh, the ladder, and then I go and pick up my other foot. I slip, and then bam, right onto the uh, driveway. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. <laughs> did not happen. I was totally fine. I got down the ladder. I was scared, but I, but I did it. But I did it. And I say that to say this. When we read the, what Jesus is telling us, what he's encouraging us to do, here's what we see. That faith is demonstrated through obedience, not certainty. So faith in following Jesus, if you're trying to follow him in your life, it is, it is demonstrated not through having all your answers, questions answered, not through having no doubts, but obeying even in the midst of your questions, even in the midst of your doubts, even when you might want to do something else. See, Jesus, I'm not sure, I don't understand, but I am going to trust you. And, and so hear me this morning, uh, to have doubts does not mean, it does not mean you are living in sin. To have doubts does not mean you are living in sin. Uh, we just need to know, in fact, on the other side, that doubts in and of themselves are normal, they are to be expected, and they are okay, because all of us have them. All of us have them. Now, the question then becomes, what should we do? knowing we have doubts, knowing they're pretty normal, and knowing we're probably always going to have them, this sign of heaven, sign of heaven, what should we actually do with our doubts? Or put another way, if you are feeling how I felt like when I was in college, like, man, I, I just don't know. I just don't know about all this stuff. What should we do? 
And so, so here's what I, I'm not going to do the, uh, this morning over the next couple of minutes. What I'm not going to do is try to give you a big apologetic um, intellectual defense of Christian Christianity. I think that stuff is helpful, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. In my experience, however, many of the times, even if we say they're intellectual, many of the times our doubts are more than just that. They're experiential, they're emotions, there's things that have happened to us. And so they're not just, not that apologetics are not helpful, um, but, I, but that's not, not what I'm going to do. Instead, I want to give us a couple of things to consider when it comes to dealing with our doubts. And so here's what I do. I want to read a short passage from Mark chapter 9. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, what's happening here, the context, is that Jesus is with three of his disciples up on a mountain doing some really cool stuff. I'm not going to get into it right now. And then they, as they come down the mountain into the village where the rest of his disciples were, Jesus sees his disciples and the religious leaders arguing. Like there's this big commotion and he figures out what's going on. Long story short, this man had come into the village trying to find Jesus, finds his disciples and asks his disciples to heal his son who was dealing with a lot of stuff and the disciples couldn't do it. And so the religious leaders were like, see, you guys are frauds. You can't actually do it. And so Jesus then says this. After figuring out what's going on, it says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 21. Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. So again, this father uh, is explaining how his son has suffered like this for many years. And if Jesus is able to do anything, unlike his disciples or his followers were unable to do, would he have compassion on this father and his son and heal his son? And then Jesus responds to the father who questions Jesus' ability to actually do it uh, by noting, Jesus notes that Jesus' ability to heal is not the problem. Of course he can. The problem in this specific instance is does this father, does this man actually trust that he can? In other words, Jesus seems to be saying, I can do it if you will believe in me. Now, we don't have time to get on to the context here. This is not to say you need to have enough faith and you will get anything you ask for. But in the context of this specific story, Jesus is face to face with this man, and he tells this man, the prohibiting factor right now is simply your belief. Do you actually believe that I can do it? And then in verse 24, here's how the man responds. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, this man has some belief. Again, after all, he did come to his disciples and now to Jesus to get help. But he also recognizes that he ha- um, that his that he needs to ha- that his hope needs to be or his belief needs to be fully recognized in order to fix the situation. But at the same time, this situation has been impossible. No one's ever been able to heal a son, and Jesus' own followers couldn't do it. And so it's hard, right? It is hard for this man to actually believe this can actually happen. And so the father here is admitting he wants to believe, but he can't help his doubts and his discouragements. But he wants Jesus to help him believe more fully. Like he does believe, but clearly he doesn't believe all the way. And so he says, Jesus, will you help me do it? And so real quickly, here's what I want to do. I want to give us three things to do with our doubts. If you are there and you want to believe and you're not sure if you actually can, the first is more so in a question in response to this text, and that's simply this. Have you asked God to help you believe? 
Have you actually asked God and wrestled with him, not just like a one-time, one-off prayer, but wrestled with him with your doubts and, this, and asked him to give you strength where you do not have it? See, often um, when, when it comes to our, our doubts and we think I need to listen to more podcasts or more sermons or read more books and all those things are fine and they are good. But if we really believe Jesus is who he says he is, that followers of Jesus get his spirit, should we not ask the spirit to encourage us in our weakness? That we should actually wrestle with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with actually asking him to help. And I think oftentimes, many of the reasons why God does not answer our prayers right away is because if he did, we'd be like, thanks, and we'd be on to the next thing. At the end of the day, if God loves us, cares for us, and knowing him and his grace is the best thing for us, then of course we should talk and wrestle and sometimes be angry with him to grow in our relationship with him. And so the first thing I would encourage you is to be consistent and ask him to help you in your doubts and in your unbelief. It doesn't mean he's going to give you some like, here's the answer to your question. But Lord, would you encourage me? Have you actually asked him to help you? This always reminds me when our daughter who's seven, our sweet daughter who was seven, Finley, when she was like two or three, and she started to learn how to put her shoes on, she had this phase where she wanted to put her shoes on by herself, and she didn't want any help. And it would take her like 10 to 15 minutes. And I'm all for like her learning, but after a while, it's like, it's time to go. And she was like, nope, I'm doing it by myself. And so we got to the point where we would like tell her it's time to go 10 minutes before we actually had to leave. And sometimes she could do it. Many times she, she couldn't. And all she had to do when she got frustrated was to have me to ask for my help. That's all she had to do. But in her frustration and anger and maybe discouragement, she wouldn't ask and it would take forever. And half the time she'd get it right and the shoe would be on the wrong foot and you got to take it off anyway, right? So like, but all she had to do in that moment was ask, right? And so I would just say this, listen, we need God's help. All of us need God's help. And following Jesus is not simply supposed to be a, this blind faith thing. One of the things I learned in college is that, yes, there are certain things that we do not know the answer to. We will not know the answer to, but there are many things we can learn and seek. And so my encouragement, especially when it comes to asking God to help you believe, is to pray consistently for small things in your life and see what he does. My encouragement, maybe the next step, is to actually write them down. And this has been really cool for me. So I've got a stack of cards for many people at New City Church, things that I'm praying through. And so I pray through a handful of them a day. And as these things get answered for many of you, I highlight them. So I keep the cards, but I highlight them and I add new things. And it is such an encouragement to see me as I go through these cards to see all the ways that God has legitimately answered sometimes really difficult prayers. But the only way I see that is because we've asked and I actually wrote it down where I could be reminded. And so asking God to give you faith in small things can be really encouraging. So that's the first thing. Have you asked God to help you believe? Uh, the second thing, this might sound maybe different than what you're used to, but, but let me explain what I mean. Second thing is this, to doubt your doubts, to doubt your doubts. In other words, when you have a doubt or a question about something faith-related, and so the, the easy thing to think, well, therefore, this faith thing is not true, we should also doubt what the reality of what our new belief could possibly be. So let me explain what this means. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, uh, he explains it really well. He puts it this way. It'll be on the screen. He says it this way. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity and God's existence in general, rightly and fairly, is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then to ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own, but that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts 
And my thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which, about, which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those, that, uh, those beliefs as you seek from Christians from theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. Now, this does not, again, answer your doubts into the affirmative. This is not like mean, well, if I doubt my doubts, I'm going to have all my... That's not what this is saying. But it is simply showing that doubting one thing, so let's say for existence, God's existence, but not considering and, or doubting, doubting the other belief that there is no God, simply, at least, at, at least, to be fair, is not intellectually honest. So again, it's totally okay and normal to have doubts. We all have them. But doubting them doesn't answer them in the negative. So for example, right, the problem of evil, it's a legitimate thing that all of us wrestle with. How can a good God allow all this evil to happen? I don't have a good, concise answer for that in this side of heaven. I don't, I don't know. That's my, that is my, as a pastor, that's my answer. I don't know why everything happens the way that it does. However, if God doesn't exist, then we have to also be honest about the alternative, that objective evil doesn't either. That we might not like something, but just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's wrong. I know it's a cliche example, but Nazi Germany, the majority of people in Nazi Germany believe what they were doing was right. So who gets to say? Right, when we talk about the evils of gun violence, of what happened in our own backyard a couple of days ago, all of us are grieved and say, this should not be. But if God does not exist, why should it not be? Who gets to say? And just because the majority of people may say something, that also doesn't mean it's right or wrong. For the most of human history, until the last couple hundred years, the majority of the world said slavery was perfectly okay. So how is it any different today if it's just based on what we think? If God doesn't exist, then objective evil does not exist either. We might not like it, but just because we don't like it, who are we to say that it's actually wrong? Right, if God doesn't exist and you talk about how the universe was created, if God doesn't exist, you really do have to believe that everything we know and see actually came from absolutely nothing. That the perfection of life and all the science and all the stuff that like if it was like a point one, anything was off, none of this would exist as it does. If you looked at it, it's crazy, it's mind-blowing when you look at all the stuff that have to be actually perfectly aligned for our life to be here. If God doesn't exist, all of this came from nothing. And of course, in any other area of our life, we don't believe anything just comes out of thin air. But that's what we have to say is true if God doesn't exist. All of this literally came from nothing, right? Or why does bad things happen to good people? Again, if God does not exist, who says they are good people? We might like them. We might respect them. We might think they have a lot of character and integrity, but that is just our opinion. Who actually says that they are good and who gets to say what is happening to them is actually bad? Again, we might not like it, but why are we the judge of what is good and bad? Why is a human being deserving of more life than a cancer cell? Why is a human being deserving of more life than a virus or a bacteria? Just because we don't like something doesn't actually make it true. So therefore, we should doubt our doubts. Again, this doesn't convince us that Jesus is, that Christianity is true. Again, if you believe in God, there's a lot of stuff you have to wrestle in on that way. I get it. But it's just to be intellectually honest, we should also doubt the things that cause us doubts and think through what's actually true if those things are true. And then the third thing I would encourage you when it comes to wrestling with doubts, and again, this might be weird for a pastor to say, but it's true, and that is that you should tell people about your doubts. I think one of the best things you can do is tell people that you're struggling. Tell people, hey, man, I'm not sure I believe in this, or I'm not sure what to do with this. If, I, I know this is hard because perhaps if you've been in church, or maybe you grew up in church, and you had those experiences where you had questions about things, and people kind of got on you or shamed you for it. I just want to say, New City Church, that is not the case. 
it is okay to douse. And I think one of the best places to do that is actually in our community groups. In fact, we do community group leader guides based off the sermon. Uh, this week, all of our groups are going to be talking about our doubts. And if you're not in a group, you can text NCC groups. It's all one word to 97,000 NCC groups for New City Church to 97,000 to get in one. But you should say, hey, I don't know if I believe this or I don't know what to do with this. And here's what you'll find out, right? When you are honest, you'll also find out that you're not the only one who struggles with this. This is the same thing with discouragements or sin issues in our life. We feel like we can't tell anyone because everyone's going to be like, I can't believe it. And then we finally are honest. And then we find out other people are just like us. I think one of the best things you can do is say, hey, I'm wrestling with this. Last week, if you were here, one of my good friends, uh, Jordan Penley, who came and preached, him and I meet every other week. And we talk about a lot of stuff. And there have been many times where I've said, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. Like, I obviously believe Jesus. I'm not going to quit my job. But like this particular area, this theological concept, like, like, I don't know. And there's been like times where it was like six months. And he's like, well, bro, I'll pray for you. Like, I, he didn't try to answer it. Like, I, there's been significant times where I've had to be honest. Like, I don't know what to do with this. This is hard for me. I think it's one of the best things you can do. And here's the, also this reality. Um, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are confusing. Right? The good news is that Jesus and who he is, that he has come to redeem us, that is very clear. But the Bible was written thousands of years ago, and cultures completely foreign to us, with completely different cultural assumptions. And so sometimes you read it, and I'm like, this makes no sense. It can be very confusing. Or it's implications, right, um, that I don't understand how to apply. Like, the Bible doesn't say anything about how often I should use my smartphone or how often I should check my email or how much I should get paid. And right, so you read the scripture and you try to maybe apply some wisdom to your life, to your decisions. But you're all, you're, you're, there's often times where like, I'm not exactly sure what to do here, right? There's many things that can be confusing and that can cause us doubts. And so I think one of the best things you can do is simply be honest and for those of you who, when people are being honest with us, not try to intellectually or apologetically convince them, but to say, hey, man, that's really hard. I'm really sorry. Because we believe Jesus, who he says he is, and his spirit resides in us, I'm going to continue to pray for you as you wrestle through that. Again, I'm, I mean, hear me. I'm not against apologetics and intellectual stuff. That was really helpful for my journey. I'm all about that. But oftentimes, I found that that's not always the primary or the only reason we might be doubting. And so I think you should tell people right? You should uh, tell people, you should doubt your doubts, and you should ask God to help. Now, that being said, those are some practical things you can do, but how do we remain faithful in the midst of them? So even while you're doing these things, how can we remain faithful and not lose hope as we are struggling with our doubts? I want to read really one more passage here this morning that kind of maybe to encourage you. Here, here's what I do, okay? In the midst of all the doubts and the things that I kind of wrestle with and I'm not sure of, here's what I go back to. That helps me in the seasons of deep doubt and discouragement. In John chapter 20, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to many of his disciples on Sunday evening. Uh, at least one of them, Thomas, was not there. And then it says this in, in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, but Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So after his resurrection, he appeared to a bunch of them, but, but Thomas wasn't there. Verse 25. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, this is where Thomas, if you're familiar, gets the name Doubting Thomas from, right? He, he, he doesn't, he's not sure that this actually happened. And now, um, I don't think that's a fair title because I think what Thomas is doing here is what any sane and normal person would do, 
right? I don't think doubting Thomas is the right word. I think maybe uh, realistic Thomas, normal person Thomas, like dead people. Like that's not, I wouldn't believe it either. I wouldn't, the only, in fact, the only reason that the disciples believed it, the other ones, is because they saw Jesus himself. And Thomas here, just, just to be fair, he is not doubting either. He's flat out rejecting. He's not saying maybe, he's like, no, this does not actually happen. And then verse 26, it says, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. They were indoors, by the way, because they were afraid for their lives, that if they kill Jesus, they're going to come for his followers next. So as a side note, something happened to make all of their disciples afraid for their lives to ultimately giving their lives for Jesus. But that's something for another day. Uh, 26, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So I don't know what happened there, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> Peace be with you, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put them into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so here Thomas goes from disbelieving to proclaiming Jesus to be God in the flesh for what he has done, right? He had resurrected from life, that everything that Jesus said was actually true. And I think it's just worth pointing out, it wasn't Jesus's teachings or his love or his miracles that persuaded Thomas. It was his resurrection. That's what did it. And for me, this is what keeps me going in my times of difficult doubts and questions. Listen, there are a lot of things that Scripture does not precisely answer. There are a lot of things that happen in our world that give us questions that we aren't told the answer to. But here's what I do know, that if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. That when we read Scripture and we're not sure about this or why God would allow this or why he did this through certain people, here's what we do know. If he rose from the dead, it changes everything. And so again, my aim this morning is not or was not to give some apologetic defense of Christianity, although I think that this is actually helpful. In my experience, many of the people that have questions and doubts which are legitimate don't actually spend some time looking at what the evidence might actually be. Of course, the resurrection is one of those big ones. Um, but, I, but here's what I do want to do. This is, what, this is what it does mean, right? It does mean that if Jesus rose from the dead, if he conquered sin and death, then for us, it means that everything is going to ultimately be okay. That you can question a lot of things. And scripture never tells us good news that we have to pass a theology exam to get into his kingdom. But if Jesus actually rose from the dead, this changes everything. One, one more quote uh, by Tim Keller again. I was listening to this interview he gave recently and the interviewer asked him, um, in the midst of like all the political and racial tensions and everything that's going on, what would you say to Christians who are worried about the future? And here's what he said. He said, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, and was seen by hundreds of people and talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything is going to be all right. Whatever you are worried about or afraid of right now, it is actually going to be okay. That doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But it does mean it will one day turn out all right. And if you're not familiar with Tim Keller, this is not some like, oh, this sounds like really great, so I'm going to say it. Uh, he's 71 years old. 
has stage four pancreatic cancer. He's doing okay right now, but this is not something that most people recover from, especially at his age. And he went on to say that actually the night before this interview, him and his wife were weeping together, knowing the shortness of life they have left. That they've been together, married for decades, and know that they, whether he recovers or not, like they're just older. And they, their time remaining is a lot less than the time that they have spent together. And it is really hard. So they were weeping over these things. And he said, knowing Jesus rose from the dead reminds them that it's going to be okay. It doesn't mean you stop crying. It doesn't mean you might not have doubts about other things. It doesn't mean it's not still hard here in the moment. Until we meet Jesus, we will still have our wounds. But we know that somehow, some way, it is going to be okay. And hear me this morning, it is only going to be, okay, if and only if Jesus rose from the dead. That's the only way, right? We should doubt our doubts. Here's the reality. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If there is no resurrection, then this is the only life that we get. Whether it's good or bad, it ultimately does not matter. The moment you die, it is done. But if he did, but if he did, it changes everything. So I want to close by ending uh, reading Psalm chapter 13, the last two verses that we began with. The psalmist is talking about his lament and his sadness and his doubts. But then he says this, verse 5, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Guys, this is the gospel, that God treats us generously, that he treats us how we don't deserve, that Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life so that we might find hope and redemption in him, that Jesus rose from the grave so that his mercy and grace can be given to sinners and to seekers and to doubters, to people who do not have it all together, to people who blow it, to people who have questions. His grace is there, that I can have all of the questions in the world, that I can have all of the doubts in the world, but I will still cling to the resurrection with trust. If I could put it this way, the question again for us this morning is how should we deal with our doubts? How do we move forward knowing we still have them? Here's what I would say, that faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is trusting Jesus in the midst of our doubts. That it is okay to doubt, that it does not make you less than, it does not make you less faithful, it does not make God mad at you, right? And, and here's, the, here's the thing that I remember. Doubt is not our enemy. Doubt is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy, right? Trusting in ourselves and what we would want over what God would want for us, that is when we get into trouble. That is when we have problems. Listen, we all trust in something. All of us trust in something. The question is simply this, can that thing do for us what Jesus can? Can that thing give us hope? Can that thing give us grace? Can that thing give us forgiveness? Will that thing never leave us? Will that thing never forsake us? Will that thing never turn its back on us? Because this is who Jesus is for us. That in our doubts, in our confusions, God welcomes welcomes us. He allows us to walk in them and that we can be faithful followers of him even in the midst of deep doubts. If we choose to cling to trust, if we choose to remember something happened 2,000 years ago that radically changed the world. And if Jesus rose from the dead, I can follow him in the midst of my doubts, trusting that one day it will all make sense. But until then, I will doubt my doubts. I will tell people about my doubts and I will ask the Lord to help me in them. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is trusting Jesus in the midst of them.